0: Hello and welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan and I want to talk about a Japanese proverb that I really like and then have a little bit of a look at a few ideas around it and especially focus on some of its theological implications. So the proverb is this, A nail that sticks out will be hammered down. A nail that sticks out will be hammered down. The basic idea of the proverb is that the person who really stands out in any way is probably going to get pummeled back into place, and this will usually be done by a group of people who just cannot handle any kind of non-conformity. It's the kind of idea that reinforces Kierkegaard's view that the crowd is the lie. After all, the central impetus of the hammer is not the truth, it's just about agreement or uniformity or unanimity. Of course, this Japanese proverb can be taken as a compliment and alongside another Japanese proverb, which says that envy is the companion of honour. To say that the envy is the companion of honour is to say that if you stand out, you're bound to be met with criticism and resistance, and some of this criticism and resistance is going to be unpleasant. If history has anything to teach us, and I think it has quite a few things to teach us, it's that sometimes the person who challenges the crowd is is met with violence. But if you get this kind of negative treatment, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong, although maybe it'll be helpful for getting you to rethink your assumptions. But in the end, being treated poorly by a crowd may just be a sign that you're on the right track. Again, though I should say, it's not a measure of whether you're on the right track if you get criticized. Truth, in my view, is not about consensus. It's about a whole bunch of other things. Of course, the hammer that comes down may actually not be in the wrong uh, so for example criminals who get punished for crimes they've they've been met with the hammer of justice which is a a kind of rule of law which is agreed to by people because they have been they've just stepped outside of what is legal the hammer in this instance can be right that is unless the law is wrong and yes i do think that the law can be wrong we have again, countless historical cases to prove this point. So this is why we must call the law into question as often as we can, and not just for the sake of rebelling, just for the sake of rebelling, it's it's about checking whether the law is serving justice, because while the law and justice can be on the same side, in a kind of beautiful partnership, sometimes they're just not. Uh, nevertheless, it's not this kind of critical, careful, legal, or judicial hammering that I'm primarily concerned with here. My concern is with the kind of hammer that comes down unreasonably, hastily, angrily, maybe even vindictively. This is the kind of hammering that I have a serious problem with. And to help express my problem with this kind of hammering, I have my own proverb to go with the original Japanese proverb. So the original proverb is that a nail that sticks out will be hammered down. My proverb is this, the hammer usually misses the nail. In other words, the hammer usually doesn't pause to question why the nail isn't doing what it's being expected to do. What I mean is not that the critics of the nail sticking out don't wound their targets, because there are a great many people who have been deeply wounded by a blow of the hammer of the crowd. Rather, what I mean is that the criticism, this kind of hot, violent or hasty criticism, is often completely misplaced, it doesn't hit the nail on the head, to use another kind of idiom. Again, I'm not talking about deliberate or careful or thoughtful criticism here, unthinking criticism misses the most fundamental fact of the nails sticking out, it's actually not about a moral position or even one person's rightness or another's wrongness. Just if you look at human dynamics, it seems that it's hardly ever about the ethical. It's just about the fact that the nail is sticking out. This is why the hammer comes down. The nail is not agreeing with the hammer. So the hammer, this is the untruth of the crowd, misses the nail. That is the truth of the human experience, the individual human subject. Most of all, my point here is that people's biases and reactions mostly have very little to do with some or other so-called rationality or reasonability. This may sound like an insult. It's not meant to be that. It's just just really like if you study human nature, a little bit of anthropology, social psychology, you find out that people tend to be driven by something else, especially when they're in crowds. So people's biases, I think, especially in their in-group and out-group, Uh, situations, their in-group and out-group biases, they're simply driven by mimetic desire. This is a very cool concept and I'm probably going to come back to it more than once in future, but what I mean by mimetic desire, broadly speaking, is this, that mimetic desire is a, a fact of being human. It's maybe the most fundamental aspect of our way of understanding desire. This is to say that desire is always borrowed mimetic desire means that desire is always borrowed there's no such thing as a desire that springs up autonomously this is not an overstatement all desire is shaped by the con- contexts within which people live and move and have their being mimetic desire is the shared or borrowed desire that in collective flashes of automatic mirror neurons brings people together it's not generally about what's better or worse But it's about allegiance and that age-old mimetic question, are you with us or are you against us? If we fail to see the mimetic drive of the crowd, that is the fact that the crowd is glued together by proximity more than it is glued together by rationality, we are likely to get caught up in it. We're likely to live in the untruth of the way of the hammer. So one philosopher who came very close to recognizing the untruth of the hammer, was a philosopher who used the hammer, albeit in a literal sense this time, as his primary, primary example for how we live in the world. The philosopher, for those of you who probably already guessed, is Martin Heidegger, and he wrote in Being and Time that normally we have a posture towards things that is what he calls ready to hand, rather than present at hand. What he means is, that in picking up a hammer, the actual tool of the hammer, we do so with a kind of ready sense of what it is for and how it is used. We're not, in other words, concentrating on its presence, on its hammerish attributes, its handle and the metal, metal bit at the top. But this same Heidegger, who who recognized this ready-to-hand quality of our posture towards being, saw the untruth of the crowd as something utterly removed from the experience of the individual, So much so that he saw the crowd as the quintessential example of living inauthentically. Nevertheless, failing to see that he too could be influenced by this very same crowd, Heidegger embraced to quite an alarming degree the ideology of Germany's Nazi party. It's tainted Heidegger's reputation terribly because he failed to see something that was right in front of his eyes. He wrote about this, the untruth of the crowd. He failed to see all the ways that the hammer was actually broken. But sadly, the failure of people to see the mimetic nature of crowds and their tendency to fall unthinkingly into the groove of the masses is just as common today as it was back then. What does all of this have to do with Christian theology? So allow me to make a rather brazen claim, it's going to maybe sound somewhat jarring given that Christianity has, for so many people, been on the side of the hammer, the crowd. But my claim is this, one of the central and most important contributions of Christian theology to ethics in general in the world today is its stance against the mindless angry mob. Christianity, that is if we read it through the teachings of the figure at its centre, must be understood as a critique of the hammer of the crowd. As a corollary, it can also be read as a defense of the nail, so to speak, that has found itself sticking out. Whenever Jesus is confronted with a mob, he resists the urge to join in their hammering. This is quite a brilliant thing. Even when that means utterly contravening the laws that they believe in, the, the laws that the crowd believes in, in. So take, for example, John 8. Uh, it's, the Fourth Gospel, which describes a scene in which a bunch of people are about to execute a woman by stoning because she's been caught in adultery. She's done the thing that's not socially acceptable. What people tend to overlook is that there is no precedent in the entire Jewish law that would allow Jesus to step out in the way that he does. As far as the law was concerned, forgiveness was only reserved for minor offences, not for major ones like adultery. But here Jesus is quite courageous in in that he breaks the law. He effectively, actively denounces some of what the Hebrew Bible agrees with. In the process of dealing with the mob in John 8, Jesus says something very impressive. He says, the person who is without sin should be the first one to cast a stone. Now, on the surface, this looks like a fairly simple thing to say, but it's quite ingenious. In essence, Jesus forces each person present, especially in the mob, to step out of their mob mimeticism and their hive mind stony mentality and examine themselves as individuals. Instead of feeling themselves as part of a crowd, he gets them to, in a way, kind of become very introspective and become aware of who they are and where they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And the result is amazing no one wants to cast the first stone because they all realize that they are not perfect, just like the woman that they're about to stone. You see, in that culture, one sin wasn't worse than another. Every sin was an indication of being disconnected from goodness itself, which was condemnation enough. In that moment that Jesus calls everyone to be present to themselves, they are forced to think of themselves outside the hammer of culture, they have to see themselves, as, in a way, as individual nails. And in that moment, there is peace, and mob violence is averted. But it's it's self-awareness, it's this incredible, uh, powerful thing. But the thing is, it wasn't really peace that would last even for Jesus, who was known as the Prince of Peace, He. it's not that he was the source of any kind of violence, but Violence became directed at him because Jesus did this sort of thing so often that he started to stick out a little too much. And he stuck out so much, in fact, that he ended up getting crucified. You could say it like this, the hammer wanted a few nails to hammer down, so it did this right through his wrists and his feet after one of the most brutal torturing sessions recorded in history. If there is a powerful and significant critique against mimetic violence, even in its verbal and and symbolic forms, or any kind of mob aggression, it must be the crucifixion of Jesus. The story makes it obvious. An innocent man is put to death because he sticks out, and not because he's in the wrong in any way. In fact, his guilt or innocence regarding the crimes he is accused of has nothing to do with why he gets executed. He's killed by a mob because he's on the side of the minority. He sticks out a little too much, and so the hammer steps in to hammer him down. So Jesus said some words that discredit pretty much every person who buys into the mob mentality that picks on one person or small group of people in the name of some kind of larger crowd. Jesus said that people will know who's, who his followers are by the way that they love each other. He didn't say that they'll know who his followers are by their perfect adherence to heteronormativity or cultural biases or purity code or any kind of crowd coherence. And anyway, this is the same man who said that we should love our enemies. That is, we should love even those who don't fit with our own agenda. I think this is a pretty radical way of articulating it an ethical way of being. This sort of wisdom to me seems really sorely needed today, especially by those who think that the point of believing in the transcendent is to have some big other to support their own expanding egos. To me, it's actually a little bit about what Lent, the season that we're in, is about. It's, It's about the fact that the transcendent is the absence of ego, the denial of self, or even the surrender a kind of surrender to self-giving and generosity. It's a surrender that is expressed in very simple actions, like giving up chocolate or coffee or some kind of digital addiction. The divine effects, by definition, a glorious, loving, life-giving freedom from the lie of the mob or the crowd. But it does this by revealing the truth of our natural imitation of the desires of others. In other words, freedom from the crowd only arrives in the paradox of seeing that we are the hammer, and those who disagree with us may be our next nails or victims. It's only when we discover how we have been complicit in the lies of the crowd that we are really free to genuinely love and care for those who have been shunned by the crowd. And that's it for for now. Uh, Thank you so much for listening in. Cheers, everyone.